one of the areas that I have a, a little bit of uh, ability and, and interest, I should say, I suppose, is uh, preaching. Uh, I've written a little book, uh, 2009, I think it was, called Why Johnny Can't Preach. The media have shaped the messengers. And I explored what happens when a once uh, linguistic culture, oral, and then uh, radio and so forth, especially printing press, what happened when the image-based technologies of the 20th century became the dominant way of our speaking to one another culturally? And what we found through a number of studies is that literacy was declining. It was not declining precipitously. It did not fall off the cliff. But the point was from the printing press in the 16th century until the middle of the 20th century, roughly World War II, literacy rates were growing. The competence in handling language was growing. And then what happened is it began to taper off. So in 1959, the book appeared, Why Johnny Can't Read. And the author was exploring why are the language rates now changing and beginning to decline. And in 1992, a book came out, Why Johnny Can't Write. Because people who pick up a telephone don't compose handwritten letters or hand-typed letters. They just pick up the phone and chat. And so composition skills were apparently declining. And since I'm not a very clever person, I've never been accused of being smart, I take what I learn from other people who are clever and smart and try to make sense of them. I was putting together two and two and coming up with four. If as a culture we do not read as well as we once did, if as a culture we do not compose as well as we once did, what does this mean for people whose job is to read ancient passages from the Holy Scripture and compose sermons about them. So you could see the cultural decline was decline in precisely the two areas that are most important to preaching. And so I have spent a certain amount of time, both because I've been a minister, taught at a theological seminary, and written this and a couple other small books, I've spent a good deal of time wrestling with the question of preaching. And so our title today is Preaching, Uh, what, why, and how. If you have your handout, you'll notice in a few places something colored on my overhead. That's because I distribute handouts early enough that the staff can have time to photocopy them. But I reserve the right, as recently as this morning, drinking coffee at the hotel, to make a few additions here and there. So the stuff that you see that's colored, uh, and you're saying, I got a bad copy, you got a perfectly good copy. I just kept fiddling with it, hoping eventually I'll I'll do something right, um, which hasn't happened yet. The reason I like to talk with you most of you are lay people. The reason I like to talk with you about preaching and not merely the DMN students or Master of Divinity students is a minister's relation to his congregation is analogous to a husband's relation to a wife. That is to say, if you've ever done premarital counseling as a counselor or minister, or if you've had premarital counseling as married people, you know that one of the things we try to accomplish in premarital counseling is have them develop a common expectation. In the first year of marriage, many of the struggles people have is because the wife is from a family who conducts business this way, the husband's from a family that conducts business this way, each expects the other to conduct business as theirs did, and they have different expectations. So the typical one that's almost humorous in many households is in some households in America... Uh, the men in the family take the, the uh, kitchen garbage out and make sure it's properly disposed of in the correct receptacle. And in some families in the United States, apparently, the females in the family take the kitchen garbage out, you see, and put it in the receptacle. Well, after 10 days of marital bliss between Mr. Wright and Mrs. Wright, 
There's a festering pile in the corner of the kitchen, and each person casping aspersive glances at the other, wondering, when is this guy going to take out the garbage? And he's wondering, when is she going to take out the garbage? And they just have different expectations. So what happens then is, as ministers join churches, ministers are informed by their theology of ministry, by their reading of Holy Scripture, by their listening carefully to many sermons, reading books by and about preaching, and the typical member of a congregation is informed very differently. So I'm hoping today in our few thoughts together that we might, uh, 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 I might share with you some of the expectations that most people with a theological training have of preaching so that perhaps your expectations of the preacher and the preacher's expectation of preaching might coincide. And so uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about what preaching is, uh, why, why it is the manner and means that the apostles chose it with God's endorsement, and how we can benefit from it. So what and why and how. So you know, I suggest introductorily um, that if, if you were asked, or you were asked, anyone in this room, uh, what is preaching, if you're like me, you, you, would, you would have said and would say something like this, it's what the minister does behind the pulpit on Sunday. That's, that's what I thought preaching was. They called it preaching, and the person did it, and so I thought that's what preaching was. But you could imagine, if you wanted to play devil's advocate for a minute, what if the preacher just decided on April Fool's Day, if it fell on a Sunday, that instead of doing what he normally does, uh, he came into the pulpit with the New Yorker and read film reviews from the back of the New Yorker, film reviews by David Denby or Anthony Lane, undoubtedly. And he, he reads these film reviews and then declares a benediction and goes home. Is that preaching, right? It's done behind the pulpit, right? So is that preaching? And by the way, I've actually been present in a service of Christian worship once where the minister actually did come to the pulpit and open the New Yorker and read a short story. And that was the sermon, right? So it wasn't a fanciful thing that I dreamt up. I actually experienced this once. Uh, And so that's what happened. So what I think is most of us think of preaching as what the pastor does on Sunday behind the pulpit. If that someone happens to be Dr. MacArthur, then you have a very good example of what preaching is, right? Uh, I don't think he has read the New Yorker from the pulpit in recent weeks or months, right? Or ever, right? I think, I think uh, he, he would sooner eat glass than do such a thing. <clears throat> so... What I hope to do is to, to help you see a little bit out about what it actually is, what preaching is. And you'll note that I say what it is, in a nutshell, is apparent foolishness, right? In two ways, both the message of Christian proclamation and the medium of public proclamation itself are apparently foolish. And if they are apparently foolish, why would God choose a foolish message and a foolish medium to convey the gospel? So that's what we want to work with today from 1 Corinthians 1. You'll note I omitted to say that this is 1 Corinthians 1, but in the next passage, our item B, I did put it in, and then we have it again a little bit later. So we're going through most of 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 10 and 11 and so forth. And uh, just prior to this, Paul had said in verse 10 that, uh, that he was grateful that he, he wasn't called uh, to baptize but to preach. Interesting thing to say, um, and, uh, and so he goes on to explain this sort of a thing. I, I, I appeal to you, brothers, through 
the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you may all say the same things and that there may be no division among you, but rather that you might be knit together in the same mind and the same understanding. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people and so forth. And so you'll note here what happens then. So he says, what I mean is each of you says, I follow Paul, I am of Apollos, or I follow Cephas. Or, and the really spiritual ones say, I follow Christ. <laughs> right? That's the really spiritual ones. <clears throat> is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And so note this interesting thing. I thank God that I baptized none of you. I thank God that I baptized none of you. Right? Lest someone might say that he was baptized in my name. And then he recalls, oh, yes, I did baptize the household of Stephanus, but whether I baptized any others, uh, I don't even know. Um, for Christ did not send me to, to, uh, to baptize, but to preach, uh, and not through a, a, a wise word or word of wisdom, uh, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Now, it's a very interesting thing. You know, I did a number of baptisms when I pastored for nine years. We had people join the church and so forth. And in my Presbyterian tradition, we even had infants presented for baptism as well. <clears throat> and I always enjoyed the event fine. I thought it was a nice day. You know, their friends and family would show up and witness people making a public stand for Christ. And we put the waters of baptism on them and offered a prayer of blessing. And I would have never said, I thank God that I didn't baptize. I thank God that part of my duties were baptizing, right? I thank God that I got to visit the sick and represent a merciful Christ when I would go to the hospitals and visit people. I enjoyed all aspects of being a minister. But Paul says, I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you. Isn't that amazing that he would say that? It's a Christian ordinance instituted by Christ in the Great Commission. So why would you say, I'm glad I didn't do it? Well, apparently he knew human nature, and he knew Corinthian human nature, and that they were becoming partisan, followers of Apollos and followers of Cephas and some of Apollos and Paul and so forth, this kind of a thing. He was afraid if he baptized them, this would be a badge of honor that some of them would wear, you see, and it would create further division. Well, I was baptized by Paul, right? So uh, he says this craziest thing. So <clears throat> this is what he says. He didn't, I wasn't sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be uh, emptied of its power. And so here's what's really interesting to me. For the word of the cross is folly, to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will thwart the discerning of, or the discernment of the discerning, it says, and so forth. Very, very interesting. The word of the cross is folly. My friend David Wells, who has retired from Gordon-Conwell, gave the Gerhardus Voss lectures at Westminster Seminary around 2014, or 2015, and David made reference to 1 Corinthians 1.18 and his thoughts. And uh, David was uh, reared in South Africa, uh, in uh, um, Zimbabwe. I think it was Rhodesia when he was there. It's now Zimbabwe. Uh, his parents room- threw him out of the house when he was 16 because he became a Christian at the only Billy Graham crusade that was ever done in South Africa. And so he moved to London and found himself alone, studied architecture, later theology. John Stott took him under his wing and took him into his apartment, let David live with him. Um, and David was looking for a, a way to properly translate the Greek Maria here that's translated normally foolishness. And David says, in our day, what Paul is saying is for, to those who are perishing, the Christian message seems crazy. It seems crazy. 
that that's a better word than foolish, which we just don't use in our common vocabulary. But we do use the word crazy. We say that's just crazy, right? And Paul was saying that in his day, among both Greeks and Jews, the notion of a crucified Christ who was God's distinctive son was crazy. Because in the Greek religion and later the Roman, they were both polytheistic. Most ancient religions were polytheistic. They couldn't imagine a deity who in one being had all of the excellences. And so they had a number of deities. This one was wise. This one blessed agriculture. This one blessed architecture. This one blessed military endeavors. This one blessed statecraft. So they had all of these many deities, and each one was thought to do something beneficial to the human. And that's why the Romans would offer sacrifices to these deities, is to try to appease them to get the deities to bless their lives. What good is a crucified deity, right? The deity is supposed to help our suffering not to suffer. How can it be possible that a powerless, crucified man is part of our worship, you see? It's crazy. Within the framework of the unbelieving context, it's just crazy. It's it's the word of the cross that is crazy to those who are perishing. He doesn't say the teaching of parables is crazy to those who are perishing. He doesn't say the golden rule is crazy to those who are perishing. He doesn't say the Ten Commandments are crazy to those who are perishing. But for a culture who expected the deities to have powers humans didn't, and to give those powers in exchange for sacrifices to them, to have a deity promote himself and his nature through crucifixion was just crazy. It's just crazy. And so the interesting thing is um, God, in his wisdom, chose Christ not primarily to be communicated through baptism, which Paul had authority to do, but through the proclamation of the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, probably a reference to the Greco-Roman practice of rhetoric, where they had public displays of rhetoricians debating an issue and giving a speech and so forth. And they scored them and rated them, almost like a debate tournament at a university today. It's probably what that's a reference. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Fascinating sort of a thing. So the Jews in Paul's day uh, found this to be foolish as well. The Greeks thought a powerless or suffering deity made no sense. It's just crazy. And the Jews found a double uh, uh, offense in this because they wanted a Messiah who would come in and... uh, make the Jewish nation prosper against the Romans. What they wanted a Messiah to do was to defeat the Roman emperor's armies. And a dead man is a poor military strategist, isn't he? And so uh, for them, we, we want a powerful, powerful person. We do not want a suffering redeemer. That's not what we're looking for. So this was crazy to both Jew and Greek, Paul says. It's crazy to both groups uh, to have this uh, at this point. And so uh, they... They never understood at that point, you see, that the atoning system in the tabernacle was a way of preparing us for the atoning work of Christ, and it is actually essential to our salvation to have such atonement. For them, they wanted a secular Messiah in some ways. So here's what's interesting. I think many people 
that you and I call unreached uh, are actually reached. They're, they're unchurched, right? But many of them have been reached. They know in one sense at some level what the Christian gospel is. They think it's crazy, right? But you can't regard it as crazy if you haven't heard it, right? If you haven't been reached, you can't say it's crazy. You have to have some familiarity with what it is to come to the judgment that this is just crazy. And I would suggest to you that many people in our culture, in fact, the vast majority of so-called unreached people have been reached and they have regarded the Christian message as crazy and have rejected it because it's crazy in lots of ways. It's the least flattering message I can imagine. If you were to uh, watch an hour of television some night this week and watch the uh, commercials carefully, when someone's trying to reach you with Tide detergent or Ford motor vehicles, they flatter you, right? They effectively say, you're a smart person. You know what a good life would look like. It would look like driving around in Gordon's Mustang GT at excessive speeds, I might add, uh, and, and you'd be partly right, of course. Uh, you note that they, they, they regard the person that they're trying to reach by flattering them. You're a smart person. You're a wise person. You've got a pretty good life. This one product would make your life even better, you see. And the Christian religion says the crucified Christ is good for nobody but sinners. He's only good for sinners. He died to save sinners. And he's no good to anyone who does not acknowledge his or her sin, right? This is the least flattering message you could possibly preach, right, to human beings. It's the least flattering of all things to say, he's not here to help you because you're smart and wise and know how to do laundry and just need tide. He's not here to say, okay, your automatic transmission is fine, but try a five-speed manual and an eight-cylinder with dual pipes. It's even better, right? No, the Christian message says, come humble sinner to the Christ who was crucified, and you'll find rest for your souls. Come for anything else, and he may not help you at all, because that's what he does, and that's what he came to do. So it's crazy in the sense you've got a powerless deity, as it were, a suffering deity, and it's crazy because it is so offensive to its target audience. And I think people know this. Most unbelieving people have been reached and have rejected this crazy message. So the illustration I use, uh, we were driving across Pittsburgh with our younger daughter and her husband last week, and when we go by the the, uh, Greek Orthodox Church, there's two steeples and two crosses on it. It's always, it's kind of neat, 376 goes through Pittsburgh, and there are these two crosses sitting up there. My guess is a typical unbelieving person in Pittsburgh, let's say he's 38 years old, he's got a nine-year-old son in the back seat, he's driving across 376, and his son says, Dad... What are those T's on the top of that building? Because they look like T's, don't they? To a nine-year-old, he's learned his alphabet. He's doing pretty well. Dad, what are those T's? And his father says, oh, that's a religious building, a church. And Christians believe that Jesus of Nazareth was God's son, and he was crucified on a cross that looks like a T by the Romans. And the Christians believe that something good came out of that death, right? I think the typical non-believing person would explain that T to his son accurately. And we would call him unreached. He's perfectly reached, right? But he's untouched by the grace of the Holy Spirit. 
And so the message that you and I embrace as warmly as any message we've ever heard, they do not embrace, but they regard it as crazy. And Paul says all of this is intentional. God chose to do it this way rather than other ways. And so that's why he also chose a foolish medium. You see, it gets worse. Not only is the message foolish or crazy, the medium chosen is crazy also. Where is the one who is wise, right? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Uh, Has God not rendered crazy or foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased through the craziness or foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. For Jews uh, seek signs and Greeks demand wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a scandal to the Jews and craziness or folly to the Greeks. But to us who are clawed, called, whether Jew or Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the craziness or folly of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man, and so forth. By the way, the ESV says, through the folly of what we preach, as though it were the content again, but the original says, through preaching. It's the actual medium of preaching, and that's the way the King James Version puts it. ESV, I've quoted the ESV here, uh, it says what we preach, but down at the bottom it has a footnote and says, or preaching. And every other time this term appears in the ESV, they translate it as preaching, not the content of preaching. And so it's talking about the, the, the medium employed that, that is also, it seems crazy. And it's a very interesting verb when it says, it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Uh, that verb doesn't appear with great frequency in the New Testament. It's common enough. But the few times it appears where God is the one who is pleased are these that you see before you. When Christ gives the little kingdom to his followers and said, for God was pleased to give you the kingdom. That's redemption itself. And the God who was pleased to give the kingdom to unworthy people was pleased to reveal that his son through preaching. He's just as pleased. And then the other two times are in the manifestations of the actual voice of the Holy Father at Christ's baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration and in which the divine Father's voice actually appears auditorily, both at the baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration, and says, This is my beloved Son, in in whom I was pleased. The Father is very pleased that the Son went to die and suffer for sinners. He is very pleased to give the kingdom to others, and he's pleased through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. You see how... That manifests the importance of preaching. The God who was pleased to give the kingdom, the God who's pleased in his son, is pleased through the medium of preaching to save those who believe. That puts preaching way up there on the top of the value scale, doesn't it? Because the Father is not pleased with much that's wrong with a sinful and rebellious world. But he's pleased with his holy son. He's pleased to give his kingdom. And he's pleased through the foolishness, the apparent craziness of preaching, to save those uh, who believe. So the fact that it is used in these other places uh, <clears throat> is remarkable. It's an interesting word in Greek. It's sometimes translated God chose through the foolishness of preaching. Sometimes God was pleased 
And that's because in the nature of how the word it means, it actually means sort of etymologically, it seemed good. And so it seemed good means it seemed pleasant and, and so forth. And so if it says God was pleased, it emphasizes the pleasure he takes. And if it says uh, that God perceived that it was good or saw that it was good or proved it or something, that's because he saw that it was good and therefore was pleased by it. And so English has no convenient word that does both. Greek just gets lucky on this one case. And so no, it's through the craziness of preaching. Now, you and I ordinarily would think, ordinarily would think, well, of course they preached in the first century. They didn't have YouTube. Didn't have all of the other kinds of things. They didn't have movies and films and televised proclamation of these kinds of things. It's all they had available to them, right? Well, the books that I've written are in the field of what's called media ecology. And so I've studied those people who studied the progress of the human race in terms of the development of media. All cultures were originally oral, and some cultures today are still oral cultures. They've never committed their language to writing. About 7,000 languages in the world today that have never been written. Now, these are normally small hunter-gatherer cultures in Papua New Guinea and places like that, but there are cultures that have never developed manuscript, writing by hand on manuscript. But then later, uh, time of Moses, we have manuscripts, and Moses writes his things. But you remember when, when Moses wrote his books and all of the Old Testament books that were written, he didn't yet have an alphabet. You say, well, how do you write without an alphabet? Right. Well, he had a bet, not an alphabet. Right. So an alphabet is a word we use in English to say it has vowels, alpha, and betas, consonants. The Hebrew Bible doesn't even have vowels yet. Our printed Hebrew texts have all these little notes to help us, but originally they were consonantal. Each uh, figure on the, each character was a consonant, and you had to work with it. And by the way, you can, you can make sense of that. I'll just give you an example. If, if you had to do so, we'll make this a little bit bigger. You could do English that way for someone who knows English. Let's make this capital. Right? You could make sense of that. The Hebrew uh, manuscripts did not have letters, letters between, spaces between the letters. They didn't distinguish upper and lower case, and all they had was consonants. But we could read this as in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, because we know English. And so that we, we might find it easier if we put spaces, right? The entire Hebrew Bible is written this way. And so uh, manuscripts have been around for a long time, but later they became much more refined. And you, you now, in later dates, you actually have vowels to go with your consonants and to help you out a little bit. And so uh, manuscript cultures have been around for uh, nearly 4,000 years now. The printing press doesn't appear till the 16th century. The printing press has been around 500 years. <clears throat> we didn't have a camera until the late 19th century didn't have the first uh, electronic device, telegraph, until the late 19th century. Um, and then uh, we didn't have uh, moving pictures until middle of the 20th century. So these are all fairly new media. And so what happens then is I study the question of media historically and so forth. And so I'm very aware that there were four media in Paul's day that were regarded much more highly than proclamation. Poetry, in no particular order, poetry dialogue, 
um, uh, rhetoric, and, of course, drama. That is to say, the only reason you and I know anything about Homer, right, about Ulysses, you see, the clever Ulysses, is because at some point poetry that existed in the Greek world for centuries orally, the person that we call Homer wrote, them, wrote it down, right? And so we know that poetry was highly consequential. Great amounts of the Hebrew Old Testament are poetry, not just the Psalms and the other wisdom writings. First several chapters of Genesis are much more poetry than prose. It's, it's filled with poetry all the way through. And uh, in ancient cultures that were primarily oral, when they became manuscript cultures, they still appreciated how language sounded. And so even their prose was closer to what we would call poetry, where the poet's very interested in the sound of a language. That's what they kind of did. So poetry was very, very important in the ancient world, and it, ex- it exists in manuscript form in many places. Dialogue was, of course, very important. We know that the Socratic and some of the pre-Socratic and the post-Socratic philosophers all used dialogue. Some of you remember in college having to read maybe the Phaedrus dialogue by Plato uh, or Socrates or some other dialogue in which a, a person carries on a conversation with another person, and that's how they did philosophy. So this was considered a very, very interesting uh, uh, way to produce a message, was to do it through dialogue. All the philosophers used it in that time. There, there was also the schools of rhetoric, where these people were trained in public oratory, how to introduce a speech, you see, and, and how to illustrate it, and how to move people. And they, they said, you know, you have ethos and logos and pathos. Some of you remember studying that uh, boringly at some time. They had those kinds of things. And people would actually show up to watch these tournaments, like a debate tournament in some sense. It was a very high art form, and many commentators think that's what Paul is contrasting the gospel to. And not through words of wisdom, you see. They, they think this is him speaking to the Corinthians, you see, who would have been party to that culture, and say, no, no, we're not doing it that way. We're, we're doing it a different way. And, of course, drama was profoundly important. Some of the ancient places in which they perform dramas are still standing today, years and years later. And it was so consequential as the way of conveying cultural values and cultivating the public's sensibilities uh, that it, was, it appeared in the funeral orations of any emperor who ever built one. So there were a lot of benefits to being emperor. By the way, I wouldn't mind slipping back in time and being an emperor for 10 or 20 years every now and then, just for the fun of it, right? Right? And I could put a Mustang GT label on the chariot <laughs> and make it look like well, there's a Mustang pulling it. So why not? It would work fine. But one of the great benefits of being an emperor was you got to write your own funeral oration. And so you went through life, and each time you accomplished something that you wanted to be remembered by, you added this thing to your funeral oration to make sure that you would be acknowledged historically as the person who did this. And anyone who built a dramatic theater always included it in his funeral oration, right? Because this was something really consequential, was to create a public forum where people could be entertained and hopefully edified in some way. And so it was very, very consequential. Proclamation, by contrast, what we call preaching, you see, the kerux, the herald, the person who declares publicly a matter of public importance on behalf of another who sent him to do it was a very lowly regarded medium in the first century. And so uh, Gerhard Friedrich in his Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says, obviously a herald was not highly regarded. Uh, He was simply an official 
like a bureaucrat that works for a government agency, pushing the papers necessary to push to do the will of the legislative body, but the people that we never see, person back there doing that kind of a thing. Simply an official. Pollux and Amastacon mentions him in the same breath with the keeper of brothels or inns, the small shopkeeper and others. The judgment of Theophras von Hohenheim is to the same effect. It is probable, however, that the herald's official status was better. In other words, those who commissioned the Kerrigs thought of him as a very useful bureaucrat in some sense. But the, only the popular opinion was so unfavorable. So the popular opinion of a person publicly declaring to the public on behalf of another their will was lowly regarded, and they were regarded unfavorably. So when Paul said God was pleased or God chose through the craziness of preaching, it's because in his day this was the least significant medium, and God should have used a more significant medium, a more impressive medium a more influential medium, a more successful medium. He should not have chosen this. He had four things available in the first century that could have been employed, and he says we deliberately did not use those media but others. And so why do such a thing? Why choose a crazy message and a crazy medium? Uh, And so note then, for consider your calling, brothers, not many of you, were wise according to worldly standards, and not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, redemption, so that as written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not in poetry, not in drama, not in any other art form that's impressive on its own rights, but we boast in the Lord. The message and the medium you see are both apparently crazy because they do not appeal to an unconverted world on its unconverted terms. Its very presence says this should look crazy to you because by your standards, it is crazy. But it's the power of God. When it works and where it works, it works for that reason. So what makes the gospel work is when, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, these eyes see the moral beauty that the innocent Christ suffered for the wicked Gordon. And we see the remarkable moral beauty that an innocent would die for the wicked. We're like Jean Valjean, uh, and, and now we, we, we are overwhelmed by the possibility that such a thing could exist. And so then we boast in the Lord. So think about the contrast. I love reading Robert Frost, lived in New England 15 years, go back to hike most years in the White Mountains, love to be there. Uh, if all of our preachers had the poetic ability of Robert Frost, if you were converted out of their ministry, you'd say, it's because the person is a great poet. If they pre- presented it in a great drama and you were converted, you'd say, well, that, that Morgan Freeman, that man can really act, right? In any movie that he narrates, well, I'm going to go see just to listen to that voice, right? <laughs> Who wouldn't, right? So uh, it's a great voice. But you see, if they use this common thing that week after week, all around a city and all around a country, 
people merely stand in the pulpit and try to explain to others that their master has sent them to tell you something important, and the master reveals his will through Holy Scripture. And so we do our best to exposit it and to explain it so that the faith would rest not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so when Paul says that God has rejected the wisdom of the wise and so forth, this is frightening business because today there are occasional ministries and ministers who are adopting the tools that God rejected, right? He has rejected the world's way of persuading people on unconverted terms. And now some of us are tempted to adopt and embrace the methods that God rejected. Because, you see, there are either those tools of persuasion designed by human wisdom in an unconverted state or media that are designed and approved in the wisdom that only comes from God, who knows our frame and knows that we're only dust. And so the contest is not merely for the message The contest is all for the medium because the medium of just a simple five-foot-three fellow from Pennsylvania explaining the Holy Scriptures as best as a five-three-foot man can, right, when he explains to you the Holy Scriptures, and through that explanation you say, that is in fact what God's Word says, you see, then you're more impressed with the great wisdom of our God who knows our frame because he's our maker. You're impressed with him with his creative wisdom, with his providential wisdom, with his redemptive wisdom, right? Because you're persuaded that the message didn't come from the person who delivered it. It came from someone else, and that's why we do it that way. We don't do it because in the first century we had no other media. We had four other. We do this because it's right. And so how we benefit from it is sort of an interesting sort of thing. I want to suggest uh, the little answer from uh, the 21st chapter of the Westminster Confession, Um, I'm a Presbyterian, so we use the Westminster Confession. But its real virtue is it's one of the last of the Protestant creeds. Actually, it is, in large measure, the last of the Protestant creeds, which means it benefited from all the earlier ones. They met from 1643 to 1649, 1,121 times, by the way, had over 120 commissioners and 30 advisors. So the the amount of labor hours that went into it, building upon the Irish Articles of Religion and the the Heidelberg Catechism and so forth and the Second Helvetic Confession, all these other creedal things. It's one of the precisest and most thorough ones because it built on the shoulders of all the others. So it's really a very thorough one, very good in that sense. And uh, when they talk about worship in chapter 21, they mention at one point the elements of worship, the proper things to do in the worship of God. Note the reading of the Scriptures with godly fear the sound preaching and conscionable hearing, we want to come back to that, conscionable hearing of the word and obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and word receiving the sacraments instituted by Christ are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. Beside oaths, vows, solemn fastings on special occasions. So they make a distinction between the regular things that we regularly do and the things we reserve for special occasions. But notice when it comes to the scriptures, The reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound proclamation, and conscionable hearing. Now, you've made many good comments to each other and to your family and friends when you've returned home after a morning here at Grace. And of all the good things you've said, you've never said this. You've never said, boy, conscionable hearing is a great thing, (laughs) right? 
It's an obviously 17th century adjective, and you can see it's also obviously derived from the term conscience. What constitutes a conscionable hearing? And you'll note that even the dictionaries who define it recognize that the older definition is now obsolete. The term is obsolete. No one uses it unless they talk about Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 21. But note that what they say is that uh, it, it, it is acceptable to one's conscience. That the proper way to hear the Word of God is in a manner that's acceptable to one's conscience. And I think it means something like this. As I'm preparing to hear a sermon, on my good days, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, I realize God, who has chosen this medium and this message to convey His redemptive blessings on His people, may be pleased to speak to me today. If He calls me to repent, Give me grace to repent. If he calls me to believe, give me grace to believe. If he calls me to obey, give me grace to obey. And then the entire time you're listening, has the minister made the point? Is it clear from God's word, not merely human wisdom, that this is a duty I should do, a sin of which I should repent, whether in thought, word, or deed, a duty I should attempt to fulfill by the grace of God the Holy Spirit, whether thought, word, or deed? So listen conscionably is to say this is God's medium and this imperfect messenger may give an adequate message. And if he does, his words become God's words. And I will obey them as though they were God's words. See, then the minister has to, he has to exposit. He has to demonstrate that that is the case. That is his duty to do so. But insofar as he does so, I want to listen as though God were here in his own person and saying, repent of this, Believe this, do this. And Westminster said that is a conscionable hearing of the word. And when you prepare yourself with such a brief prayer before a sermon, committed by God's grace to obey what you must obey, to believe what you should believe, to repent of what you should repent of, uh, then you hear it conscionably. You're, You're wrestling with your conscience before God who speaks to us in his word and say insofar as he speaks today, this is how he does it. And so even though he chose fallible people to do it, that's his choice, and he apparently he thinks more is gain than lost, right? Then if I wish to hear from God, this is where and how I will hear from him, and may he give me grace to follow whatever he discloses to be. And Westminster quaintly calls this the conscionable hearing of the word, and I think that they were probably right. So here's a couple of takeaways, and then I'll entertain poorly your question, I suppose, um, that... Uh, Expect aspects of the Christian preaching to appear crazy or foolish, as David Wells said so. By the standards of the world in which we live, whether it's the 21st century or the 1st century, there will always be aspects of divine wisdom that are so different from human wisdom that they appear a little crazy, right? Uh, who in the world could believe that, that we gain a life by losing it? He who loses his life gains it, Right? It's, it's crazy, right? It's gospel crazy, but it's crazy, you see. You should expect that. And under good faithful preaching, from time to time you'll say, wow, that just seems crazy. And that's okay. Expect it to be so. It'll be that way. Even expect the medium of proclamation to appear crazy to some people. who say, why didn't we use something flashier? Well, why didn't they use something flashier in Paul's day? Why didn't they do dramas? They had the possibility. Why didn't they do rhetoric? Why didn't they do dialogue? Why didn't they do poetry, you see? 
Why did they chose this underappreciated medium? And the reason is we want people's faith to rest in the power of God and not in the artistic ability of humans. That's why it's done that way. And so it has to be that way. And so, yes, learn to listen to a sermon conscionably. I'll remove this. We don't need that. Uh, learn to listen to a sermon conscionably. And sometimes if you listen conscionably, you get nothing. If your minister on a given Sunday reads a short story from the New Yorker, you're going to find nothing to believe, nothing to do, and nothing to repent of. But if a faithful minister unfolds the Word of God the way Steve will this morning uh, and helps you to see something in there that you are to believe or do or repent of, then you have the posture of a prayerful wish that God would cause you to conform yourself to this word that he speaks to you, and that is to listen conscionably. And so you're not there as a film critic or a sermon critic and so forth. You're there to say, if God is willing to speak to my poor soul today through this imperfect messenger of his, I will by his grace do as he discloses. And then you pray for his grace to help you do that. So that's why I think this crazy thing is there. Most ministers know this. They've studied this. They've studied it in their seminary classes. They know that Christian proclamation is a kind of a weird way to do things, that it was in the first century, that it is today. But, but they exposit the Holy Scriptures. They explain their passage to you for the reason that they have to demonstrate they got their message from a superior. And they are merely messengers giving the message of the superior to the public. And if you understand that, it helps you to see, oh, they're doing what they're supposed to do. And I wondered why they were doing that before, and now I hope and think that I do. So let me pause and see. Uh, and Isaiah can just cut me off whenever he wants, preferably not with a knife, just pull the plug. Um, but uh, there, may be, there may be a question here, too. Often when I speak, there are no questions. There's just widespread befuddlement. But every now and then a question actually emerges, and I keep longing for the day when uh, a question might pop out and not mere befuddlement. And so if you have a question, I'll be happy either to answer it or make Isaiah do it. Mere befuddlement, huh? <laughs> He's got a uh, microphone. Um, so when it comes to like the stuff that would be considered like worldly tactics of trying to bring people in, is there stuff that should then be like methods that should be avoided because it's too close to worldly wisdom, like Obviously, some people like really, really love a good, long, winding illustration that barely makes the point. Is that, you know, I don't know. That's a, almost a question, but hopefully it's in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I think that, uh, that uh, at least from our point of view, not the hearer, it's harder. Uh, we know our own hearts imperfectly, you know, but the heart's deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? But uh, if a minister does anything in a sermon for the motive that people will regard him as clever or noble or virtuous or something, he's on the wrong track and needs to repent before next Sunday. But if he says, I'm, telling, I'm using this illustration not because I think it's clever, but because I think in this case it actually does help to make the matter a little more clear, then I, then I think the, the law of charity would say let's give him the benefit of the doubt that he's used a good judgment in selecting this particular illustration. But yes, unfortunately, we could imagine in, the, in some rare and unfortunate circumstances 
that uh, we get a long uh, illustration that really doesn't even illustrate the point that we thought the person was trying to make. And there his desire to be artful has overwhelmed his desire to proclaim the gospel and to have people believe not because he's a good preacher, but because Christ is a good redeemer. You see, that's the test for real preachers. They don't care to be known as good preachers. They want Christ to be known as the one who saves to the uttermost those who come to God through him. And for the people like that, you can listen to them, and you can listen to them for many, many years, maybe until they hit 82 even, all right, in some rare circumstances, because you know that's what they're about. I used to say to my Gordon Conwell students, if you had the power of the Holy Spirit when you preached, and you don't, but, you know, like, like the guy on the Fantastic Four who could stretch his arm out 30 or 40 feet, that you should imagine as you're preaching, if I could reach out to every soul in this room and draw it into the bosom of the Redeemer, I would do it, right? And I don't have that. All I have is feeble, imperfect explanation of the Word of God, and so I employ that instead. Other befuddlement? Hi. Uh, Thank you so much. Um, Mine was more an observation, and that was just that the verses that you put in this outline um, help me in evangelism to realize that the power of the Word of God is the power of the Word of God. It's not the power of my words. Correct. And it really takes the load off me to come up with something clever or to tell some really cool story. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really comforting to ministers to realize that if they're faithful in their task, they're doing the best they can at use, using God's message through God's medium, and why wouldn't God occasionally bless that? Because we've done so. So, yeah, we have a very modest view of the office of preaching, the way we saw in the first century. It's, it's not regarded as a very favorable thing. But that's okay for us because that's what God uses. Um, you mentioned that there are some cultures out there whose language is still just oral. They don't have anything written. So for missionaries who are trying to reach them, is there no way to like give them a Bible or anything like that? It's just all through conversation in their language? Yeah, thanks. That's, that's the question Wycliffe asks, you know, and people that do that sort of thing. Uh, you know, there are organizations committed to translating the Bible into languages where it hasn't been translated. So what we do is we use the same thing in many ways that the apostles used. Remember, they could declare that Christ died for sinners and was raised for their justification even before Paul's letter said that, right? And so the original apostolic kerygma was in fact oral, and later we wrote down their writings. And so, yes, in a culture like that, I would expend my effort learning to speak their oral language and to preach to them orally. Uh, and wouldn't spend much time translating a Bible into a non-existent written language, right? They're just, and so it's hard for you and me. We derive so much comfort and faith from the Holy Scriptures and from reading them since the printing press for 500 years that it's hard for us to imagine Christianity being propagated without private Bible reading. But remember, for three, for three quarters of Christian history, there was no printing press. And Christianity moved throughout the globe through oral proclamation. 
And then the printing press has been a special gift in God's providence for the last 500 years to some peoples in the world and not to all other people. But when St. Patrick goes to Ireland, which was like the outpost of outposts, or as he might have put it, the outhouse of outhouses, right? Uh, uh, eventually, he declared and proclaimed the gospel there, and that's nearly a, a century before the printing press. So, yeah, that's exactly what they have to do. Missionaries in those regions learn the oral language. They learn how to use it, um, and they spend their efforts to outreach knowing that their hearers will never have the joy that you and I sometimes take for granted of having a copy of Holy Scripture in our own language in a printed version that's fairly inexpensive that we can read. Uh, so Johnny can't preach because of declining literary rates and ability to compose. Presumably that's matched on the side of the congregant by a declining ability to receive a good composition. Um, the currency of the day is a three-minute YouTube video, not a 45-minute sermon. So what can pastors do over time with their congregations to help them better receive a, a good composition, a sermon? Yeah, that's, I get asked that question whenever I deal with these matters, even the books and so forth. People raise it's a very intelligent question, very helpful one. Uh, you you, you kind of have to choose in life sometimes to make a decision, and knowing that you're not Goldilocks and you're not going to get it just right. But you have to say, I might not get it just right. It may be a little too hot or a little too cold, but I'm going to go one way or the other. And what I would say is the way we learn... To, to listen to or benefit from many good things is by having them well done. So if a minister has a well-organized sermon, there's not any wasted stuff in it. It therefore has movement, and the points that come first help the points that come later to make sense of it. So the whole time you, you are caught up in it in some sense, you will cultivate the capacity of others to listen well because they will have been rewarded for having done so. The alternative strikes me as uncharitable. Let's suppose you and I agree that on the too easy, too difficult, that we don't have the human wisdom to be sure that we're right at any point. Where do we err, right? Where do we choose to err? So when when Dr. Broadus died, he was one of the presidents of uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, now in Louisville. Uh, when he was living, it was in uh, Greenville, South Carolina. But he was a fine, fine preacher and teacher of preachers at the seminary. And later, his, the preparation and delivery of sermons was used for over 100 years in theological seminaries. And in fact, Southern just reprinted it about five or six years ago. They're still using it. Well, when Dr. Broadus died, uh, one of the Chicago newspapers wrote a little coverage of his life because clergymen were important people in the 19th century and early 20th. And in the process of reviewing Dr. Broadus's life, um, the, the person said, uh, Dr. Broadus, as a preacher, flattered people with the most appropriate and sincere form of flattery. He never preached to them as they were. He always preached to them as he knew they wished to be to be perhaps smarter than they actually are and more devoted to Christ than they actually are. And I thought it was remarkable that Dr. Broadus had that trait, even more remarkable that someone who heard him could pick up on that and comment on it. That's a remarkable world, someone could say that. But see, what Dr. Broadus said is, I know in my heart that these people wish 
that they were perhaps a little bit more learned in the doctrines of our religion than they are, and that they were a little bit more consistent in their following of Christ, a little more passionate and uh, pious in their prayers. And I'm going to preach to them as though they've already attained it and see if that doesn't attract them to it. So I've chosen to err the way Dr. Broaders chose to err. And and I teach to do so. I say, aim at what they aspire to. Do not aim at what they've attained to. And see if in that process they don't attain to it. I actually had... Is the mic off? Oh, yeah, I actually have kind of a question with that. Um, So we have, I mean, we obviously have programs like VBS and Children's Ministry. um, And so, and also me growing up in kind of a more... Um, liberal church that I don't think really had preaching that I didn't discover until my adult life. But at what point kind of in the development process of children and and their mental faculties and things, do you think it's appropriate for them to sit under true biblical preaching? And should we be doing things like VBS with plays where we are, you know, I mean, that's not what we would consider preaching and there's no children's ministry in scripture. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, you, you, again, you, you'd probably have a spectrum of answers. If you asked uh, 10 seminary professors the question, you'd get some spectrum in there, right? Um, and, uh, but but in some, at some point you choose to go in one way or the other. Um, I think we have to be sensitive to the developmental capacities of developing humans, and children are developing humans and so forth. We need to be, uh, that's one end of the spectrum to make sure we get that. On the other end, they probably will never learn to sit through a sermon until they've tried to sit through a sermon. So there may be something in between that at some point parents are encouraged to see if the little Billy can't make it through the first 10 minutes of a sermon or something like that and see if it won't grow over time and properly reward them for doing that. And, and the reason I err on that side, as it were, I'm not sure it's an error, but I have to choose, right, uh, is because the, the most elegant uh, Greek in all of Paul's letters uh, uh, is the sentences in Ephesians. He has the lengthiest sentences with one main verb and 15, 16, or 17 subordinate verbs perfectly placed together into an intelligent uh, statement. And yet that's the very letter of all his letters in which at one point he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. He expected the children to be there when the Greek text of Ephesians was read aloud in the assembly at Ephesus. Isn't that amazing? That the most demanding of all of Paul's Letters. Now, I think First Peter's tougher, but it's not Paul's. I think Hebrews is tougher, but it's not Paul's. But the most elegant of all of Pauline syntax in his letters is the Ephesian syntax, and yet he expected children to be present hearing it. So I'd say that's our goal, at least, right, that we all agree on. Our goal is to get our children to the point where we can address them as adults and not children, and then parents and church officers will have to have a nice little dance where they cooperate with each other in that process and try to respect each other's points of view on the matter. How do you um, respond to preaching where like, some truth is revealed, but the main point of the passage isn't really the main point of the sermon? Yeah, that's a good question because, see, for, for conscionable hearing to be conscionable hearing, uh, it has to not only be true, it has to be demonstrably true and demonstrably based upon the Word of God. The minister's authority is only derivative. It's derived from divine authority. And if the minister has not disclosed through exposition that the point of his message comes from God, then there's nothing you can do conscionably. What he says may be true, 
but there's nothing your conscience is obliged to do because you're not at all persuaded. So I heard one not long ago in another city far, far away. I always tried to hide those things. Uh, and uh, someone was preaching from Paul's, one of Paul's letters to Timothy, and, and, it, and it began with this, uh, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and self-control. And the sermon began with an illustration from the Trade Center Towers coming down 20 years ago and uh, how fearful that is and diseases around the world before COVID and so forth. And uh, he preached a sermon on how Christians should have faith. Well, I knew we had a problem from the outset because when he put his text on the board, it said, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of wisdom and power and self-control. I thought, well, the four means what he's saying here is connected to what he just said. What did he just say? Right? And, and so I happened to have a Greek text with me, and I noticed the word translated fear there only appears once in the Greek New Testament and is not the ordinary word for common human fear. And in fact, many translations translated timidity. And, and in the previous sentence, he says, stir up the gift that was given to you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us ministers a spirit of timidity, but if, and so forth. So what he was doing, remember, remember also he said, let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example. Apparently, Timothy was a little timid. So, something I've never been accused of. But Timothy was apparently a little timid, and Paul had to sometimes stirring up. But see, he's, he's speaking to you, and it says it in the, in the uh, second person singular. Uh, on the laying on of my hands, because Paul was present to ordain him. So all he's saying to Timothy is, get up and go, man. Preach while you've got life left in you. When I laid my hands on you, and when we ordained you, you were ordained to preach without timidity. Be bold and publicly proclaim the gospel. So is it true that we are fearful people? Yes. Is it true that it's a common human experience? Yes. Are there passages in the Bible that might teach us how to deal with it? Yes. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God, which passes all human understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians tells us how to deal with it. This passage didn't, right? And so uh, there, the passage was fine had it just been a rotary international business meeting and someone talked about human fear and what we might want to do about it, but it was not proclamation of God's word. It just did not... It did not the point of the sermon was not the point of the passage, or even remotely close to it. And so, yeah, in a case like that, you still listen, listen conscionably, but you say partway through, is, which is what I did, is that's not what Paul's talking about, right? And so, um, and if you, if you find this happening, let's say, 45 times a year, then your minister's not serving you well, right? If it's rare that you find a person's whose sermon point is the point of the passage, then it's not the best preaching to submit yourself to on a week-in week and week-out uh, basis. Um, you need to find someone who will do the job better. And some of us, you know, we love the church in its entirety. We love the fellowship. We love the instructional programs. We love all the things that go along, and we love the preaching too. So for many people, when I've asked them about the preaching in their church, they say, well, he, uh, of their pastor, he's not a great preacher, but... He's not a great preacher, but... And they mention his other nice traits. Well, that's like going to a, a four-star restaurant. You say, what did you think of the food? You say, well, the chef is not a great cook. But boy, did he arrange the table napkins nicely, right? And he lit, he lit the candles with panache, right? 
and, and he was wearing a bow tie, God bless him, right? Uh, so all of these might be nice things, but you expect a chef to cook, and you expect a preacher to preach. And you expect a visiting Greek professor to say that the class has ended and you're dismissed. Because <laughs> I don't see any other hands, and I know you want to get ready for worship and don't want to just bolt in quickly. I'll mill around for a few more minutes, um, but thank you for your kind attention, and God bless you today and the rest of the, your worship together. <laughs>